What does Kazakhstan, the metaverse, and the person in front of you have anything to do with each other? Hey, it's Lucas Scrobot, and you're listening to The Lucas Scrobot Show, where we uncover purpose, pursue truth, and own the future. It's episode 266, and the first time that we're doing this episode live on YouTube. Uh, it's one of the changes that... Uh, we said we were going to make as we move into 2022, and alas, here we are, uh, pretty nervous doing it live. Normally, I have recorded live the tape in the studio, and then, you know, able to go back, clean it up, and post it, but I felt that this is really the way to move forward. So, alas, here we are, 2022. We've been on a little bit of a break, as I'm sure you are aware of. But we're kicking off this year, and the main change that I have been wanting to make to this show is to be less reactionary to what's happening in the news cycle and to begin to form and shape thought and culture in more of an actionary way. So many of us, I, I know and I believe from people that I talk to, we are leaders in communities of some sort, whether it's leaders in our family, leaders uh, or influencers in, in our peer groups who look up to us. And I believe in, this, in the millennial generation and generation, generation Z, we want to leave an impact. We want to make a difference. This generation, and I'm blending millennials and Gen Z together, is one of the most impact-driven, purpose-driven generations ever. That's really how we, we started this podcast two years ago, three, year, three years ago, 2018, whatever that was. We started with these monikers like own your story and own the future, these monikers of, of what is your purpose? How do you uncover your purpose? Because we are a generation that is driven and hungry to, to have a purpose. To leave a purpose behind us, to leave an impact behind us. So that is the biggest way that we're changing the direction, not really even changing the direction of the show, but really changing some priorities in the show. Uh, and I hope that it serves as a benefit to you. As I said in the previous episode, we're still going to be doing, yeah, that makes sense. We're still going to be doing Weaver and Loom. We're still going to be covering uh, social geopolitical events and how that pertains and impacts our life. Uh, but more, more than that, I personally, and I hope that you do too, want to move out of this uh, reactionary, metaverse, anxiety-driven, social media-induced, clickbait world of the 24-hour news cycle. I mean, can you get more, <laughs> more taglines in one sentence? And move into a place where we're life on life, actually leaving a real impact and difference in the people around us. Because what good is it if we have millions and millions of followers, but our friends think that we're jerks? What good is it if we have a huge social, social media footprint, but our kids don't like us and they think that we're you know, annoying to be around and we have horrible relationships with our kids or our wife or our husbands or our family? That's the last thing that I want in my life. And I'm pretty sure it's probably the last thing that you want in your life. So that is, again, a little bit of the vision of, of where I hope to continue to go. I don't know exactly how to get there. And that's, it's 
paused me in moving forward because I don't know exactly how to get there. I don't know exactly the path to take, but it, unless you take steps forward, unless you walk forward, you'll never get there. I've, I've shared this analogy many times on the show before. It is as if, if you know where you want to go, you have, you have the map in front of you of where you want to go. You could tell me all the right turns, but unless I get in the car and drive there, I won't know how hard to press down on the gas. I won't know exactly how many turns I need to make on the steering wheel. And so if you're feeling stuck in your life, you know where you want to go, but you're not quite sure how to get there. The answer is to get in the car, to get in the vehicle that you know that is going to bring you there and start driving, even if you don't know quite how to drive yet. And this is one of the things we're actually going to be covering on today's episode. And as I said in the intro, we're going to be starting with Kazakhstan. We're not going to be doing a deep dive into Kazakhstan as we normally do, uh, but I, I do want to intro with what happened in Kazakhstan in the, the early days of 2022, because it really lays a, a picture, a foundation of the question that we're raising in this episode. Now, what happened in Kazakhstan? Well, in short, Kazakhstan is a large mass of land in Central Asia next to China and Russia. It gained independence in 1991 from the Soviet Union, and it is an oil-rich nation. It produces 1.6 million barrels a day of oil, 1.6 million. That compares with an oil-rich nation like Qatar, which produces 1.9 million barrels a day. The difference is the... <laughs> In Kazakhstan, that wealth that has been generated through oil has not trickled down to its 19 million people. It roughly has stayed in the upper echelons of, of the ruling elite in society, and that has caused a lot of frustration. It caused a lot of poverty. People are unhappy. Well, earlier this year, the, January 2nd this year, oil prices, gas prices inside Kazakhstan shot up, which led to a domino effect where there were riots across the nation. Many people died. 44 deaths have been confirmed, uh, both on people who were rioting, the civilian side and the government side. 20,000 uh, quote-unquote bandits who attacked the city have been arrested. Um, Thousands have been injured, hundreds, 400 have been treated in hospitals, 8,000 people have been detained, according to the Kazakh government. Uh, and these riots all began with just one little match of gas prices rising. This is one of the more stable nations in the region. It is, you know, when my friends visit, I see the imagery from it and it's beautiful. Parks everywhere. It looks wealthy. It looks stable. It looks safe. People are happy. But all of a sudden we see in a moment, a nation shake. In a moment, we see uh, tensions flare. Now, of course, there was so many things that play into this. So I know I'm going to get Texts and comments of like, well, you know, this really the way what really happened was sure, there are psyops. Sure, Russia could have been involved. Sure, it could have been America that's involved or China. It could be, it could be that people are fed up with nepotism, with corruption, 
with not feeling like the government is actually serving them with pseudo dictators who have been ruling the country for decades and not really letting go. There are a lot of reasons that built up to this moment of boiling over. The point is that I believe is important for us to take away from this of what happened is we do not live in as stable of an environment or a society as we might think. It doesn't take much for an entire nation to flip upside down on its head. It can happen in a day. We've seen this with 2020 and the pandemic across the world. We've seen how fragile the systems of society is. We saw this in America with uh, George Floyd and the riots that took place and the uprising that took place across America in 2020. We, we, we have seen the riots and, and protests that are taking place across Europe and Australia due to these lockdowns. We can see probably more clearly today than we could uh, two, three years ago, the fragility of society that we live in. And that leads me to a question that I want to pose to you. How are we building a strong infrastructure? I hate to use that word, but strong infrastructure in our lives, in our community, in our family? How are we building a resilient culture within our immediate surroundings so that if and when those days come, we have the ability to rise up as a leader, to rise up as a source of hope and strength? What are we doing to build that in culture? How are we building culture? Last year, we spent a, a large amount of time reacting to uh, leftist culture, re reacting to progressivism. Um, and this year, I believe we are moving into simple foundational tools and uh, strategies and ways that we can build stronger foundations in our life so that we can weather those storms, whether it's in our personal purpose and vision, so we don't, we're not flooded with anxiety of what we're doing with our personal lives, whether it's in our relational aptitude, making sure that we have strong and healthy relationships. How many of us walk through life with embittered relationships? How many of us walk through life with broken relationships, struggling marriages, struggling relationships with our kids or our parents? Those are not healthy relationships that enable us to move forward with certainty, those are toxic, uh, potentially damaging relationships that are fragile. And these are the, the most important relationships in our life. And finally, financially, how, how are we positioned financially? Are we a source and a resource to people around us? Or are we always needing something from the community around us, always needing more, never stable, never in a safe place. Now, I will say this, there's no such thing. There is no such thing as guaranteed safety. And that is what we, I think we can really see from what has happened in Kazakhstan. Safety is an illusion. Yes, we need to take caution, but if we go too far in trying to be safe, rather than trying to build strength within our community. 
There's a difference between being safe in our community and being in, in building strength in our community. And we want to build strength. But if we go too far in that way of trying to be safe, we become precautionary rather than taking caution. And that is one thing that I think we learn from this, what's happening in Kazakhstan and really sheds light on the fragility of each and every one of our communities across the globe, no matter where we are. So what are we doing to prepare? Well, one of the things that I have been doing over the last three months is, and thinking through, is that I want to be more integrated into my local surrounding, in my local society. Now, as someone who does, does consulting and, and works in media and online and clients across the globe, I find myself increasingly on, not necessarily on the metaverse as the real metaverse, but on the internet, connecting with relationships over uh, Instagram or email or Zoom in these uh, mediated, digitized relationships. And I've been forced to think of how can I make changes in my life, in my world, to not have so many relationships mediated by clickbait social media. Last year, got into a lot of problems on social media because I was making provocative statements that were going against things in the status quo on Instagram. And I was looking back a few weeks ago on some of those comment threads and the amount of bickering and back and forth and just insanity that was happening was not worth my life. It was not worth the anxiety. It was not worth the time in many ways. But whenever I moved those relationships from back and forth bickering with, you know, strangers on the internet into talking with people with my voice face to face about these issues, these hard and complex issues that we see things from a different way, all of a sudden, the tension between us in the relationship melted and we began, began to see each other's side and we grew in empathy for one another. Now, there were a few different relationships where the people decided, mm, I don't really care, even though we have relationship, even though we have friendship, I don't care to talk to you face to face. I'm just going to cancel you and further isolate into my tribe and my tribalism rather than reach out and build relationship and build empathy. Well, what is coming in the next decade is the metaverse. It is further digitalization of pulling all of us humans into the matrix of the metaverse where our entire existence will be mediated by digital screens in one way, shape, form, or another. Now, whether that will happen or not, there is a lot of skepticism of whether this will actually take off the ground. And I, I'm, we're going to be playing a few clips from Phil Libin, who is the founder of Evernote and the CEO of Mm-hmm, who is really not so bullish. He's not very positive about the metaverse, and we'll see why. But there is something in here that is tying back into this greater theme. So Here's this opening clip of Phil. He was uh, on a podcast hosted by the tech journalist, Eric Newcomer. And so this is a, a clip from their episode. I think it's kind of bad that um, 
we don't have a shared reality anymore or that or that our shared reality or or even like our shared like epistemic infrastructure like the way that we here we uh, go uh it hasn't advanced it's stale it's skeuomorphic it's stupid no one wants it it's worse in every way from actual reality it is a gloss that uncreative people and companies put over a found fundamentally a lack of good ideas so th this is phil's main point that the, the metaverse is merely a gloss that corporations put over bad ideas. As he says, you know, in this interview, he's talking about really how the things in the metaverse are ideas from the 70s and 80s. They're, they're ideas from sci-fi novels, which warn about the, uh, the catastrophes that a metaverse will, will create in society. We see it in The Matrix. We see it in multiple uh, sci-fi books and novels and they're all cautionary tales and he's saying the metaverse is it's really just this illusion a gloss over our life and that's what so many of us are doing on these phones we're we're escaping the reality around us to gloss over life and it's not building true connection what it does though it builds and stewards tribalism and division. That's what these social media platforms have been designed to do and do by nature. Here's a second clip by Phil. I think it's kind of bad that um, we don't have a shared reality anymore or that, or that our shared reality or, or even like our shared like epistemic infrastructure, like the way that we understand things, like we can't even agree on how we go about understanding something. And I think anything that, that kind of pulls us further apart from a shared reality is just is really damaging. And, you know, Facebook um, started doing this way before the metaverse, just core Facebook, like the whole the Facebook lie that, you know, oh, we just connect people is never true. Facebook doesn't connect people. Facebook connects you to your own prejudices and opinions. Uh, That's important. Facebook doesn't connect people. It connects you to your own prejudices and opinions. The same thing with Instagram, the same thing with TikTok, the th same thing with all of these uh, infinite scroll communities where you find people who think like you, you agree with people who you think, think like you, you comment on people who think like you. And then the algorithm continues to feed you that because that is what is keeping you engaged, which then puts us in these echo chambers and division, which is detrimental to society, as Phil goes on to explain. And it, it says, well, okay, your community is people who agree with you. And that's not connecting you with people. That's reinforcing your own beliefs. It's actually driving you further away from people. The whole point of an actual community is you've got to be people with all sorts of different viewpoints mm. that you, you know, that you are in community with. Um, so I think like just good old fashioned Facebook has made that problem worse. And not just Facebook, I mean, social media in general. Um, and the metaverse is just like taking that to an extreme. The idea that you would like substitute a significant portion of actual shared reality with something where you can choose, you know, who you're with in an, in an almost quasi real way just feels, feels like it's just going to make every problem we have worse and none of the problems better. Really what we're seeing in social media, as he said in the beginning, it's a gloss, not only a gloss for companies who have subpar products or subpar experiences, and they put just slap metaverse on it and now it's the hot button topic, the, the buzzword, the catchphrase, but also in our lives. 
Because this way, we don't have to engage with the human beings in front of us and the hard relationships in front of us. We can engage on our screens. And then when we don't like someone, we can cancel them. We can ignore them. We can mute their posts. We don't have to face those relationships and their quasi relationships. It's one reason that I like long form content, that I like a podcast. And I like listening to long form content because I move past the clickbait moment uh, buzzwords of social media. And I can actually listen to something that is thoughtful and has depth to it. Now, as, and with that, all of that isolation is causing more tribalism, and tribalism causes more bickering between people. Well, Phil goes on. He, Phil actually grew up in the Soviet Union, and he makes a point about how what we're seeing in the messaging of the metaverse is very similar to what we are seeing or did see when it comes to communism, and, and we still see it when people are pushing socialism or communism or Marxism, which is, well, it hasn't really been tried before. We, we haven't really, communism has never really been done right. And then you cite a bunch of places where communism was done. And they're like, well, that wasn't really communism. You know, don't, don't worry about the millions of people that were killed in Cambodia or China or Russia or Venezuela. That's, that's not real communism. Here, put me in power and I'll show you what real communism is. That's what they're saying. But here is, here's Phil again from the same interview. Uh, I was born in the Soviet Union. It used to be the Soviet Union, uh, a city that used to be called Leningrad, now St. Petersburg. It was a long time ago. I went to first grade in the Soviet Union. I was subjected to a lot of, you know, Soviet propaganda. And uh, I was told as a little kid repeatedly, communism doesn't exist yet. You know, we haven't built communism yet. We're building towards communism, but it's not communism yet. What you see around you, this horrible, horrible place, isn't communism. That's like, we're building towards it. It's gonna be great when it gets here. We're building towards it. And like, you know, you can smell a bad idea before it's like fully built. So like, I don't wanna hear like, oh yeah, the metaverse doesn't exist yet. No, 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 all this stuff, all this like stupid, useless, crappy stuff that exists right now, that, that's not the metaverse. Like the metaverse is coming. It's coming. The point that he's making here is in reference to people who say, well, the metaverse isn't built yet. Once VR reaches, you know, its tipping point, everyone's going to onboard and it's going to be amazing. This experience that you're having right now, it's not so great, but we kind of know what the metaverse is going to be like. We've seen Snapchat. We've seen TikTok. We've seen Zoom. We've had our lives mediated over Zoom and who wants to stare at another screen? And now imagine having that screen taped to your face with a hot, sweaty mask. Maybe we'll get, you know, really expensive rooms that you can walk in, but you're still, you're seeing some sort of 3D figure and the quality is just okay. No one wants to live in that place anymore. Sure, games are fun as an escape, but do you want to live in that world? I do think that we will see some sort of metaverse. I do think that millions of people will be onboarded to that. Hundreds of hours of life, thousands, millions of hours of life will be wasted on it. But I, I like the point that he's making, which is if the middle sucks, if the means to get to the end sucks, then the end is going to suck. And he, Phil, makes a point of exactly this referring to Amazon. When Amazon first started, 
the platform was really horrible. It was just text, HTML, but the experience was amazing. It was revolutionary that you could go online, you could order a book, and it would show up at your door. Whereas platforms like metaverse platforms, the experience, yeah, you, you use it for a little bit, it's novel, but then you're, eh, it's not an experience that is while we knew that you want to spend your life. And here's this last clip by Phil, and then we're going to pull out the application point. I hear a lot of people saying, yeah, the current stuff sucks, but that's because it's not ready yet. That's actually never been the case of successful technology. Killer app, right? You got to wait for the killer app. But like, but that's never been the case, right? Like, like uh, I was playing video games since, you know, Atari 2600. Atari 2600 games sucked. Very janky. <laughs> but they were great. They were great. You could tell they were great. And we, we were on Facebook when it was barely functioning too. Yeah. And it was definitely clearly going yep. to be something people used. I ordered my first order from Amazon in something like 1998, I think. Like... It was, it was in the late 90s because they still have it. Miraculously enough, like Amazon still like has my first order in my account. And yeah, it was the late 90s. I ordered a couple of books. It was the first time I ever bought anything online. It was my first e-commerce experience. It was sometime in the late 90s. I bought a couple of books, two books by James Randi. And it was super primitive. Like that Amazon website, it was like all text-based. It was like blink tags. It was like, you know, we look at it now, like it's, it's pathetic, but like, it was, a, it was very primitive, but it was an amazing experience. I could tell immediately that this was good. Oh, my God, I just bought something on a computer and it's going to show up for real. And like, and I didn't have to go to a store. And the selection of books, even back then, the selection of books was so much bigger than like, you know, the Barnes & Noble down the street. So like things don't start terrible and then become good. Things start great and then become like smoother, more advanced. So anyone who's like, yeah, yeah, the metaverse, like it sucks now because it's not advanced enough. It sucks because it's stupid and it's always going to suck. I, I love his point that he's making here. And the point that he's making is that if a product in the beginning, the idea sucks now, it's going to suck at the end. And a lot of people, it, it goes to the, the, the famous saying that the means justify the ends, but the means never justify the ends. And more importantly, if the means are not the ends, then you have a broken model. There are, there are many people, like with Marxism, communism, socialism, and many other worldviews, many other ideological paths that say, yeah, this, this sucks right now. You know, really, yeah, we have to see a lot of bloodshed. It's a lot of violence. It's definitely not utopia. It's a lot of struggle. But if we get everyone to adopt this soon, the actual thing will be here and we'll actually have peace. We'll actually have... a uh, a brave new world will actually have uh, social equality. But we just have to go through, you know, this really rough patch to get there. There's multiple worldviews that espouse that very thing. And what he is saying, in which I agree, is that if the worldview that is those worldviews that say this isn't the real thing, we're still building towards it. We have to go through this rough patch to get there, but then don't worry, it's going to be amazing. Those are Ponzi schemes. They are lies. They lead us down the wrong path. And if we're doing something similar and likewise in our life, thinking, okay, if I do B, C, and D, then somehow I'll get A. It doesn't work that way. We, we must, our ends that we want to reach has to be happening in 
the, the level one of our MVP, our minimal viable product, the things that we're starting with small, those small building blocks, if we are not having our end result being manifested and achieved in our beginning steps and results, then the whole equation is broken and it doesn't work. Here's a couple of examples, and I'm going to use some counter examples where people are like, well, what about this? You know, what about the process of working out? You know, you have to work out. I don't, I'm not a big fan of working out. I think I'm a little allergic when I work out, you know, I might turn all red, get short of breath, start sweating, can't stand up. My legs hurt for a couple of days. I'm definitely allergic to working out. And I could say, well, the process of working out, you know, that sucks. That's horrible. I hate it. The ends don't justify the means. But in that process of working out, right away, you're actually achieving your goal, which is to get a little stronger and a little healthier. It happens right then, right then in that moment. What about hard work and savings and delayed gratification? Same thing. If I work hard today and I invest today and I delay gratification today, I'm actually, the system is achieving my goal, which is financial stability and financial security. I have a little bit more stability and security. Does that mean I'm uh, instantly cash flow positive? Does that mean that I instantly have enough passive income to, to move to the Bahamas and buy a yacht? No, but it takes me a step further to that end game. Likewise, uh, I guess not likewise, but in those extremism or extremism that leads to these utopias, like whether it's the, the metaverse or Marxism or communism or all these other worldviews that say, well, we just have to capitulate a little bit. We just need to get the world to join us and then we'll have utopia. We just have to break a few eggs to make the omelet. Those things are traps. Those things are lies. The same way with people, and you probably know these people, who are looking to build their empire, they're looking to build their, their glorious world, but in their wake is a, a sea of broken people, broken relationship, and burnt bridges. The argument is, well, you know, they just weren't on board with my vision, but in reality, you're not going to reach your, your utopian dream. So how do we then orientate our lives right so that what is happening that the, the means become the ends and the ends become the means and that is something that i've been thinking about and i want to challenge you in your life right now are the end goals that you want to achieve are you achieving them via the means of what you're doing day in and day out yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. In a post-truth society where we've exchanged truth for lies and reasons for po reason for postmodern irrationality, the absurd finally makes sense. Well, it is no surprise to you or I that in 2020 and 2021, and probably in 2022, the people who have suffered the most from this pandemic are the elderly in nursing homes. Elderly in nursing homes, they, that is the, the segment of the population where you've seen the most amount of deaths. 
And it is a segment of the population who's pretty much been imprisoned. They're already in a hard place of being in a nursing home, but then because of the the level of mortality rates in nursing homes from COVID, they just went on and locked all nursing, not all nursing homes, but many nursing homes across the West down. Essentially putting elderly people in, in isolation chambers as if they're in prison. Well, across Canada, there were a number of deaths, not due to COVID, but due to neglect. Two people last year died from dehydration because they were understaffed and they were in a lockdown. Imagine you getting your meals alone in your room, not being able to go out and visit. All activities are canceled. You are literally locked up in a prison in your room and the trauma and the anxiety that you would feel. Well, the left has a perfect solution. The solution is not, hey, let's maybe rethink these lockdowns because, oh my goodness, the WHO even says that lockdowns aren't a sustainable solution and clearly don't work. Clearly they don't work. If you look at the numbers, clearly doesn't work. So maybe we should just rethink the lockdowns and uh, let, let the elderly see people. We can stop this fear-mongering and we can go on. After all, even in Europe, they're beginning to say that we are going to treat COVID more like we treat the flu, which I think is a great idea. Apparently, common sense is indeed becoming more common. But no, that's not what some people are suggesting or saying. In order to fix this problem, we need to have more euthanasia. We should just kill off the old people because look at their life quality. It's horrible anyways. Just get rid of them. They don't want to even be alive. Who wants to suffer in a miserable cell called a, a nursing home? Who wants to do that? We should just expand the ability for people to choose to end their life with dignity. Well, this is what's happening. We saw a, a case. This isn't a new case. It's not breaking news. But in Canada, of a 90-year-old lady named Nancy Russell, who she was approved for medical-assisted death because, one, because she couldn't handle her isolation chamber in a nursing home. And frankly, I probably couldn't either. I would go crazy. I mean, that's the worst punishment that you get when you're in a jail. They throw you in a nursing or they throw you in an isolation chamber to to let you lose your mind in solitude. Well, one report reads that residents eat meals in the room, activities and social gatherings are canceled in these nursing homes, family visits are curtailed and eliminated, and sometimes they're isolated in their small room for days. Well, in Canada, you do not need to have a fatal or terminal condition to apply for MAIDS, which is medically assisted death. But you have to have a serious condition and be in an advanced stage of irreversible decline and experiencing mental or physical suffering that cannot be relieved and be at the point where your quote unquote natural death has become reasonably foreseeable. This is according to Health Canada. Well, when you're 90 years old, your death is quite foreseeable. It's coming within 
I don't know, at least two decades. Well, Nancy, she, before these lockdowns, she was an active 90-year-old. Uh, she had mobility. She'd do her own shopping. She was able to see her family. The lockdowns happened, and she decided it would be better if she were to be dead. So she applied twice, and the second time, she was able to convince the doctors that uh, she had a serious medical condition. And so she was able to commit assisted death, assisted suicide. Now, their family said that they want to underscore the point that she wanted to have a medically assisted suicide or, or death uh, long before these lockdowns happened. It was a way that she wanted to die anyways. But she also said that the lockdowns really hastened her decision to have an, early, an earlier death. She was still of sound mind. She still had mobility, but she had de developed, quote unquote, more concrete medical health issues, according to her daughter, which allowed her to have a assisted suicide. This is, this is the solution to a bad choice that wasn't a solution in the first place. We have COVID. Let's lock everyone down. Let's destroy the mental health of our youth and our elderly and everyone in between and do God knows what to society. And the solution is if you're struggling, well, we'll, we'll help you end your life. That is, that is dark. Again, ends and means are not lining up. Well, in New Zealand, it's not much better. According to the Ministry of Health, COVID-19 can now be eligible for euthanasia. The defender put it, put in an official information request asking the Ministry of Health in New Zealand, quote, could a patient who is severely hospitalized with COVID-19 potentially be eligible for assisted suicide or euthanasia under the act if a health practitioner viewed their prognosis as less than six months? The Ministry of Health responded saying there is Clear eligibility criteria for assisted dying. These include that a person must have a terminal illness that is likely to end their life within six months. A terminal illness is most often a prolonged disease where treatment is not effective. The EOLC Act states eligibility is determined by the attending medical practitioner and the independent medical practitioner. Eligibility is determined on a case-by-case -case basis. Here's the kicker. Therefore, the ministry cannot make definite statements about who is eligible. In some circumstances, a person with COVID-19 may be eligible for assisted dying. The article went on to say that if you examine the eligibility criteria on their website, it's very easy to see how, in the right circumstance, someone with COVID-19 could easily be eligible. You have to be over 18, a permanent citizen or resident of New Zealand, suffering from terminal illness that is likely to end your life within six months, an advanced, irreversible decline in physical capacity, and experiencing unbearable suffering that cannot be relieved in a manner that the person considers tolerable. These make the person able, and they have to be competent to be able to make an informed decision. This is, this is the law in New Zealand. And this is where many states in America and countries around Europe and the West are going. 
medical assisted death, euthanasia. And it's largely being driven by decisions that are of lockdowns that are damaging, again, not only our youth, but the elderly. The solution should not be, let's have people kill themselves. The solution should be, maybe we should rethink these lockdowns. But again, we live in a postmodern world of irrationality that really just does not make sense. Well, this show is brought to you by listeners like you. This is a value for value podcast. As you can tell, we don't have massive advertisers on our show telling you to buy their products, but instead it's supported by you. So thousands of people turn, tune into this show every month and our, our vision, our mission has never been more clear or critical, which is to build up strong leaders who then build up their communities, not just in the digital world and the metaverse, because I do think that we need to engage in that sphere, but in real life, IRL. So you can support this show today by giving your hard cold fiat by visiting Lucas Scrobot. That's skrobot.com. You can give your hard cold fiat there, or you can do it in the way that I like to one, listen to podcasts, and two, support my the creators that I listen to by listening on a podcast 2.0 certified app like Breeze or Sphinx or Podfriend, where you then load up your Satoshi wallets with Satoshis and you stream micropayments as you listen to the content. Don't worry, or don't worry, don't go away. We'll be right back with our closing Weaver and Loom segment. Welcome back to Weaver and Loom, a part of the show where we take ancient wisdom and we weave it in with our everyday life so that we can own our future and weave our destiny and weave our destiny and own our future. I have been reading uh, the book, The Brothers Karamazov by Dostoevsky. I've started this book probably three times in my life. This, this is the one time I'm actually going to make it through a uh, moving, moving story. If you've not read Dostoevsky before, I, I've read Crime and Punishment multiple times. I always get to the end and weep at the, how powerful of a story it is, written hundreds of years ago in Russian, translated into English, and it is still one of the greatest pieces of literature that humanity has ever known. I strongly, highly recommend, if you're going to read a book this year, read a book by Dostoevsky. Uh, he did not pay me for that plug. I wish he did. That means he'd be alive, and that would also mean that I would be talking to him. But alas, he's not. But I was reading this this book, and there's a scene in the book where there's a there's an elder in a monastery, and all these people are visiting this elder, looking for his blessing, looking to to get approval from this old, well respected elder. And a, a woman comes to him and she keeps on espousing how much she loves mankind and she just loves people so much. She loves humanity. Just people are so good. Oh, I just love people. I just love them. I just love humanity. And he asks her a question and he asks, do you, 
Do you love the person in front of you? Do, how have you been actively loving people in your life? And, and she kind of gives this like uh, confused answer. Like, well, you know, people around me are horrible. The world's so corrupt. People are the worst. And so he says, he says this to her. I love mankind, but I find to my amazement that the more I love mankind as a whole, the less I love man in particular. And this, this quote struck me that the more that we quote unquote, love mankind as a whole, I just love humanity. I believe in the good of humanity. The more that we find ourselves not loving people, people in front of us, actively loving our enemies, actively loving people who annoy us, people who despise us, people we despise, people who are horrible to us, people that ruin our lives. Our role in humanity, in our life, success in our life is not about loving mankind and believing in the goodness of humanity. Rather, it is loving, actively loving, actively serving, actively sacrificing for the people around us, the people that annoy us, the people that we hate and the people that hate us, our enemies. It is in that place of loving our enemies that we begin to build a strong and a stable society. I know it's taken us 45 minutes to make it all the way around to this point through talking of the metaverse, through talking about nursing homes, through talking about Kazakhstan and means justifying the ends. But if we want to make the world a better place, it's by loving the person right in front of us. And that's means detaching and detoxing from the gloss of the metaverse, the gloss of the, the are being glued and encapsulated in our, stre- our screens, the, removed from the gloss of retreating to our tribes and tribalism. And that means going out and actively loving our enemies. Because guess what? In one shape, way, shape, or form, everyone around you They're going to think differently than you. They're going to disagree with you. You're going to have conflict. But it is our role to love people in that conflict and find those, those people who are our enemy. Those are the ones that we need to more actively seek to love, to befriend, and to serve. Because that is how we build a strong and healthy community that's, that becomes a buffer against the social upheavals that we, of course, will end up seeing. Now, if you do that, expect people to hate you even more because people don't like that. But that is, that is the cost of pursuing truth that people actually don't like. They don't like when someone tells them as it is, who speaks reality to them. But we have to see the world rightly. We must discern truth if we want to own our future. Well, that is all for today's episode. Thank you so much for tuning in to this very first time that we're streaming 
this show live. Go out this week. Find find the one person in front of you. Detach from the metaverse. Find the person in front of you and love them and care for them so that you can own your future. <laughs>